The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Ben Levison, Deputy Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about what's happening in the world of healthcare, from Regeneron's bad day to why there's a shortage of generic drugs. My guest is Josh Nathan Kazis, Barron's healthcare reporter. Welcome, Josh. Glad to be back with you on Barron's Live. Glad to be with you. Good to talk to you, Ben. Yeah, it's, it's been a while, Josh. I mean, the last time I was here, I think it was in March, and we were still talking about COVID no longer. What happened? And how did it go from being such a positive for companies like Pfizer and Moderna to what now looks like a huge negative? Yeah, well, I mean, look, uh, the world's moved on, right? The federal COVID emergency ended. Um, if you look at what data is still collected, hospitalizations are down. Um, you know, the, the the companies you mentioned, Pfizer and Moderna, Novavax, are still working towards an updated fall booster. Um, you know, I think the big question is, uh, how many people in the U.S. are really going to take that? And, um, you know, is there really a long-term future or how, how significant is the long-term future for the COVID vaccines these companies developed, you know, to such great effect um, just a few years ago? Yeah, I mean, it was amazing to me just to look at uh, estimates for Moderna earnings that went from just, you know, they made so much money during uh, the pandemic and now it actually they might lose money. Um, it's It's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, they 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 are a single product company, so it's not. If if we look at it in context, it, what was amazing <laughs> was that their first drug was you know one of the biggest blockbusters in history. That's um, a good way to look at it. Yeah. Um, well, so now things are returning to normal, and so let's talk about one of those normal things, and that's the FDA's complete response letter to Regeneron regarding ILEA. Can you explain what happened, including what a complete response letter is? Yeah, you know, a complete response letter is uh, FDA speak for a rejection of an application for approval of a drug. Uh, obviously, ILEA, major blockbuster, this has been approved for a while, um, but they ha- are facing competition from Roche. They're, they're also um, facing competition from a potential biosimilar launch in a couple of years. Um, th- this drug uh, treats um, a number of eye conditions, including uh, what's called wet AMD. Um, and, and they came up with an idea to try to extend the franchise, which is to develop a higher dose version of the drug, which, among other things, I think has to be dosed less frequent, frequently. So they had asked for approval of that. Um, you know, that less hey. frequent dosing yeah, is a big deal, I think, because ILEA is administered through injection uh, right into the eye. Jeez, ow, that, that sounds painful. Yeah, I, um, I'm guessing that anyone who has to take it would like to get it as infrequently as possible. So, so what happened? Why was it rejected? It was a big surprise. The stock dropped like 8.7% on Tuesday, something like 3% on Wednesday. Uh, uh, this had not been anticipated. What Regeneron said was that it didn't have it, the rejection didn't have anything to do with, you know, um, high dose LA's efficacy, the trials, the, the drug substance manufacturing. They talked about an inspection issue at a, quote, third-party filer, uh, presumably a contract manufacturer. Um, so something came up during an FDA inspection of someone else's facility as part of the approval. Um, 
this suggests I think that the drug will probably get the high dose version will get approved at some point, but there's a delay and analysts were pretty disappointed because there's a real time factor here. You know, the delay could give Roche more time to gather momentum. One analyst said it could last six months and there's all sorts of complications about what this means for how quickly you can get into the Medicare program. Um, so uh, most of the analysts out there and, and clearly the investors were uh, pretty uh, unhappy about this. Um, so whenever I see a big drop like that, I'm always thinking, you know, is this a buying opportunity? So what do you think? Should I be buying the dip? There there were analysts making that case. Uh, Hartaj Singh at Oppenheimer made the case. For me, it's hard to tell. It gets into the real complexities about competitive dynamics with Roche. Um, but that that is certainly a, a point that's been made over the last couple of days. Okay. And speaking of shots, um, and there's no way we could go through a whole call without talking about the biggest thing in PharmaLand right now. Those are, that's the weight loss drugs. And right now they're only available as injections, I believe. So what's the latest there and about uh, what's going on with obesity pills? Yeah, this was a huge week for all of these obesity drugs because um, there was a major diabetes conference um, ongoing and, and a lot of companies announced new data and made various announcements. So this has been top of the news for the past few days, as I'm sure people know. You know, most attention f related to these obesity treatments so far has been on really three drugs. There's uh, Novo Nordisk, Ozempic, and Wagovi, which are two different versions of the same drug. One lower dose for diabetes, one higher dose for obesity. And Eli Lilly's Manjaro, which is so far only approved in diabetes. Um, and these are all injectables. Um, the news this week I think moves the conversation forward, both towards a next generation injectable that seems to be even better than what is already on the market, and also the pills, uh, which are um, clearly the next wave here. So let me, I guess before we, I have a question about all this, but I, I, part of me is just wondering why are pills so much more difficult to, to create than an injection? Um, is there a scientific, I assume there's a scientific reason behind that? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure there's so much more difficult, but it has to do, you know, the, uh, it, it has to do with bioavailability, I think, you know, um, how much of the drug ends up being, you know, used by the body you get. It's just a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a chemistry challenge, uh, in my understanding. Um, so the injectables come first, but, uh, the pills are not that far behind. Got it. And we got some, Lily got some good news on their injectable, right? Yeah, so Lily has another injectable. Um, this is called, the, the chemical name is uh, Ritatritude. We're going to have to get comfortable with that because we're going to be hearing that a lot. Um, this is, uh, whereas Manjaro targets two hormones, this one targets three hormones. Analysts have been referring to it as a triple G uh, because of the names of the hormones it targets. Anyway, they announced that it caused patients to lose 24% of their body weight after 11 months. Manjaro um, led to 21% weight loss. Um, so this seems like a step forward. Um, and these are early studies. There will be more studies of uh, retatritude to come. Well, and 3G is certainly easier to say than retatritude. Um, <laughs> and is, um, is uh, sorry, is retatritude... Um, for diabetes as well, or is it solely uh, weight loss at this point? No, this is also a diabetes treatment. Um, and then Got there it. was also positive diabetes data. I just uh, don't have that in front of me. Okay. Um, and so why are these, why are the pills going to be so important? So I think the theory here, and this hasn't really been proven out yet in, in trials, um, but the idea is, 
you know, these drugs are probably going to be need, need to be taken chronically, right? Um, there's no, as one analyst said, there's no off-ramp. It doesn't appear as though the effect, um, or at least the belief is the effect is not necessarily maintained if you go off the drug. However, you know, the, the shots are expensive. Um, it's not so easy to, to be on, you know, regular injections. Um, and the idea is that pills would both be easier and cheaper over the long term than shots. So, so they, doctors and insurers might prefer, prefer them as kind of maintenance therapies. So maybe you would go on the injectable for a while and then switch to the somewhat potentially less effective but easier to maintain pills. These are the theories. I don't think that this has been um, uh, sort of, we don't have evidence this is necessarily how it's going to happen yet. And the trials still need to be done. But that, I think, is the idea behind the pills. I mean, bottom line, cheaper and, um, and easier for patients. And I'm still having a hard time imagining, um, you know, I guess staying on one of these things for forever. Um, but uh, so uh, what happened uh, this past week with, with pills? I know uh, Pfizer was involved in this. Yeah. So, you know, Pfizer has been talking very aggressively and assertively for months now. I mean, they really talked about it pretty heavily at, in January at the big industry conference um, that J.P. Morgan hosts about how they want to get in on this um, obesity, uh, diabetes um, market, their strategy was to move forward with two separate pills. Uh, one is called Dianagliprone, one is called Lodagliprone. And they were going to pick one of the two that they would take into late stage trials. And they announced that they had picked um, this week, I think it was Monday, they announced that they picked uh, Dianagliprone and are dropping Lodagliprone. <laughs> load of glip run uh they'd seen some we don't we don't have any names like three g's for these guys no, apparently not uh but the problem with load of glip run was that they were seeing higher levels of liver enzymes in some of the patients who got it so it's a potential safety issue no no other patients got sick or needed to be treated but um it worried them enough that they decided to drop that they said they hadn't seen the same elevated levels of liver enzymes in danny glip run but pfizer fell on the news and i think the main or one of the main concerns was that um, uh, Danagliprone is right now a twice daily pill, whereas mm -hmm. Lodagliprone and similar pills under development by other companies are once daily. So that's not great. Um, I think investors maybe were worried that some of the liver issues seen in Lodagliprone could later show up in Danagliprone, although Pfizer said that hasn't happened yet. Um, so Pfizer doesn't seem to be worried. I should also say Pfizer says they will develop a once daily version of Danagliprone, although they didn't give a timeline for that. Some analysts also pointed back to some to potential tolerability issues around Danagliprone. In general, uh, investors don't seem to love Danagliprone as the pick. Um, and so uh, Pfizer fell, um, you know, a decent amount for Pfizer uh, on that news. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of amazed watching Pfizer lately because it just uh, it keeps getting cheaper and cheaper, but it also keeps ha just not being able to get things quite right. Um, and I know Andrew picked the stock. Uh, Andrew Barry, uh, Barron's picked the stock a while back, but it's it's not been a good pick. I think we're down close to 20 percent since then um, as things like this happen. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is uh, it's still early days. Um, I, you know, it's obviously an uphill battle, right? Um, Novo and Lily will own this space um, yeah. for the next few years. And Lily has a obesity pill of its own uh, called Orphagliprone. Um, they actually just the other day said that it achieved 14.5% weight loss after 36 weeks. Um, so, you know, um, Pfizer will need to both, um, you know, 
prove that Daniclepron is as good as the competitors and also, um, you know, break into what will be a somewhat established uh, obesity market once it's ready. Um, they said in their statement, they still think they can, you know, uh, uh, that the efficacy of Daniclepron can make it uh, preferable when they make it to the market. But that's that's remains to be seen. You know, the, the competition for this pill market is going to be high. Nova Nordisk also has a pill. It's a high-dose oral version of the same drug that is in Wagovi and Ozempic. They actually have a low-dose version of the pill that's currently approved in diabetes, and that's on the market. The caveat for this about this high-dose uh, obesity version is that even though they could theoretically get approval for it as soon as next year, they may not actually commercially launch it for a while, because it takes some of the same ingredients, like the same active pharmaceutical ingredients as Wagovi, um, and they're having tremendous supply issues with with that right now. So uh, analysts don't expect that to come online for a while. The company said the launch timeline for that really depends. Um, so so that's one question for for Lily for Novo. I think for Lily, um, the focus is really on this Orphoglipron, which uh, has some other benefits. It it can be taken with food, whereas the Novo one can't. And so why is, um, do, do you know why um, Novo's having trouble getting the uh, the ingredients it needs um, for Wagovi? Is this just the kind of supply chain issues that are plaguing uh, everything in pharma right now? The 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 demand is tremendous. That's a okay. big part of it. That's a demand issue. Yeah. I mean, the demand, it's the same, you know, it's, Wagovi and Ozempic uh, are the same thing. And, yeah. and, and the pill that's already on the market called uh, Riblesis or something Ribelsis, Ribesis, uh, is also the same thing. And um, they've just, you know, for many months now had trouble staying up with the, with the demand. I, uh, I don't mean this to sound facetious. Does anyone take these for diabetes? Yes, <laughs> no, for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and that's one of the issues. I mean, yeah. um, you know, people who need these for diabetes need to be able to access these. And some of the obesity demand is spilled over and made it harder for people with diabetes to actually, um, you know, get the Ozempic that they need. And are there other companies? I mean, we've mentioned Novo. We've and sorry, I should Novo. say, you know, just, yeah. I think that's a good question. And, you know, we, we talk about the obesity stuff a lot, but, you know, th th there is a possibility, there's a potential world in which the obesity approvals don't really line up uh, or we don't get the kind of insurer um, coverage for obesity that companies are hoping for. Um, there's some ongoing trials that you read out later this year that will tell us whether the kind of like cardiovascular benefits you might expect from weight loss actually do occur with people who um, uh, lose weight using these drugs. Uh, and if it doesn't show that, um, there could be serious problems in terms of getting insurers to pay for these drugs. But even if that happens, the type 2 di diabetes market is tremendous. It's a tremendous mm -hmm. health issue in the world, especially in developed countries. And um, and so these drugs have a major market, even even if reimbursement and you know insurer coverage for obesity doesn't quite happen. Got it. And is anyone? I mean, we we've talked about some big companies here: Novo, Lilly, Pfizer. Is anyone else working on uh, on pills for this? Yeah, there's um, some some smaller biotechs. There's one called Structure Therapeutics. They're working on one. Their pills, sorry, their shares were way up this week, probably in response to Pfizer's announcement. Um, another one called Turn Pharmaceuticals. They have one that was down. Some of that, I think, had to do with a totally separate program. Uh, there were some analysts who were saying that it's structurally similar, 
to the Pfizer drugs. Maybe people were worried about that. Anyway, this is a very um, hot area and a long list of companies want to get in on it. Um, well, let's turn to, to something else. I know that, uh, you know, when I have to order medication, I'm always getting a generic. Um, and these days, it seems like generics are getting harder to find. And now there's even talk that there are shortages of some cancer treatments. What's going on? So, yeah, you know, um, drug shortages are a big problem in this country. They keep coming up. Um, the reasons are complicated. The reason it's getting a lot of attention these past few weeks is that there's two uh, very common chemotherapy drugs, uh, One's called cisplatin and a similar one called carboplatin. They're in very short supply. This is a big deal. I mean, um, some very large proportion of cancer patients receive these particular drugs. And, you know, you have medical associations advising doctors to use as little of it as possible. Um, th this is, this is a, a, a real problem. And it's led to conversations and people revisiting this question of why we keep having shortages, particularly in the generic drug, drug space, um, in general, you know, new high-priced branded pharmaceuticals have somewhat are more robust supply chains. So you, while you do mm -hmm. get the situations like Wagovi where they just can't meet the demand, um, the, 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 the really acute shortages often happen in the generics. Uh, you know, I think when you think about why, I mean, you know, the margins are, are shrinking, right? I mean, the prices of like a common oral generic is down like 50% since 2016. And that I think is tied to this phenomenon of tremendous consolidation among the buyers. Basically there are three buying groups in this country that buy more than 90% of US generics. And I, I guess maybe, maybe we skipped over this. I mean, generics are, um, you know, the US system works such that new drugs have all sorts of protections. So they're basically, the developer gets a monopoly for a certain period of time, but when that expires, Anybody can make the drug if you get approval from the FDA. So competition drives the prices down more than 90%. And the vast majority of drugs taken in this country are these low-priced generics. Um, but the, the, the issue is that these buying groups have led these, these generic drug makers to compete very um, intensely on price. And the buyers basically have no visibility into the quality of the drugs that they're buying. So they're competing... The companies are competing only on price, which removes incentives for manufacturers to maintain quality. And then that creates a situation where when the FDA shows up and finds a problem, um, they're going to they'll, they'll often shut down the production or production will shut down and um, and that can cause problems. And you might say, well, OK, but we have lots of manufacturers competing. Couldn't someone else pick it up? But in fact, you know, there's an interesting Senate report out a couple of months ago that suggested that some of that robustness is, is an illusion. A lot of these companies probably share sources um, for the ingredients or they're intertwined in other hard to track ways. So um, uh, it's it's a problem, you know, and this is all piled on top of a generic drug industry in this country. I and mean, we talk about the big public generic drug companies, they're quite weakened due totally to their own errors um, mm -hmm. in, about a decade ago when they made it, the, the the industry went through this frenzy of of really poorly considered mergers. They took on a lot of debt, and then the opioid litigation came shortly after that. And the the debt they were carrying from their ill advised M and A um, 
led them to have a, a real problem handling uh, the opioid litigation um, and, and paying down that debt. You've had a lot of bankruptcies in the generic drug space. Um, uh, and a lot of these companies, in fact, Teva, for example, the biggest player, recently announced a pullback on some of its generic drug programs. And, and now it's uh, moving towards um, uh, to focus on its new drug. So it's a mess. I mean, it's 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 pretty bad. And, and, you know, it's hard to overstate how important generic drugs are to our healthcare system. So is there any way to uh, solve the problem? It's a tough problem. Uh, um, uh, you know, there was a Brooklyn's report out uh, a number of weeks ago that suggests um, creating incentives that will essentially nudge hospitals to buy from more reliable generic drug providers to sort of build incentives into the system that would that would it's, that would um, nudge them in that direction. They argue that that could have a an effect, but um, there's lots of ideas there about how to fix this, and uh, I'm I'm not sure. You know, hopefully it'll get some focus because of just how dramatically frightening the the current um, shortage of these chemotherapy drugs is. Got it. Okay. So let's uh, move on. You know, we're not talking about COVID vaccines much anymore, but RS, RSV vaccines have been in the news. Um, what's happening? Yeah. So, you know, RSV is a common respiratory virus. Most, most people get it, not a huge deal, but for older adults and for infants, it can be quite, quite serious. Um, you know, I think people had been, for, for, for a long time, there'd been no, forever, <laughs> there's been no vaccine for RSV, nothing really to do about it. Um, uh, companies for the last few years have been racing to get RSV vaccines approved. And finally, just a f recently, um, Pfizer and Glaxo both got RSV vaccines approved. But with vaccines, the, the first step is FDA approval. And then the CDC has to basically uh, recommend how it should be used. And last week, the CDC advisors met to consider how the Pfizer and GSK older adult vaccine should be used. And they endorsed it. Their endorsement was more tepid than many had expected. They basically said that um, adults age 16 up may receive an RSV vaccine. Um, earlier in the day, it seemed <laughs> early in the meeting, it seemed as though uh, they were going to be stronger. They were going to say adults age 65 and up are recommended to get the vaccines, but they actually ended on this, this weaker note, um, even they, though, and, and does the lower age doesn't, doesn't make up for it, I, I guess. Uh, no, well, no, sorry. So, uh, they were going to do 60 to 65 may receive, this was okay. a, 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 a working group, um, of the committee had made a presentation where they said 60 to 65, you know, may receive 65 and up should receive. But as the meeting went on, um, the mood in the room seemed to shift and they ended with this uh, um, may receive weaker may receive recommendation. And I should say just earlier this morning, a few hours ago, the CDC director endorsed their decision. So this is now final. Got it. Um, and so so what were the concerns behind it? There's a number of issues. I think a big one was that the companies didn't have enough uh, efficacy data in the oldest adults, the people at most risk. There was there weren't enough of them in the trials and that left the advisors uncertain about the benefit in this most at, most at risk population. They also complained that they didn't know the, the companies hadn't set the final prices, which had made it hard for them to consider um, the cost benefit 
analysis if you don't really know what the cost is going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, there were some 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 safety concerns. They were mostly about the unknowns, um, but uh, it was really I think more about not knowing enough about how it worked in um, adults over the age of seventy five. So, Josh, I, I want to hear more about, you know, what's going to happen next with this, but I'd like to remind reader or listeners, sorry, uh, that you can put in uh, questions uh, for the question and answer session. We'll get to in, in just a little bit. So, uh, but Josh, so is this, uh, are we going to keep hearing about uh, these drugs? Um, are the companies going to keep trying to push these vac- or push the uh, research on these vaccines? Oh, no question. I mean, no, th- these are going to launch. I mean, these are launching, launching for this RSV season for the fall. I think the question is just whether they will live up to the expectations set by the companies. You know, Pfizer and GSK have both talked about these as potential blockbusters. Pfizer has said that it expects annual revenue of more than $2 billion from both this RSV vaccine and also another one it's developing for expectant mothers that would protect their newborns. Um, their projections were based on an assumed peak vaccine uptake, so not this year, but at peak, of 50 to 60% among older adults in the U.S. And I think there's a question as to whether the more tepid CDC recommendation um, will still lead to that 50 to 60 percent uptake. Um, over at GSK, the CEO Emma Walmsley said in January that she saw quote multi-billion pound Shingrix-like annual potential um, for the vaccine, referring to their blockbuster shingles vaccine, which sold 3.6 billion dollars globally last year, which seems like a high mark. Um, so whether whether those um, those ex- expectations are going to line up uh, or are, are going to be met now that um, we have this this sort of may receive, you know, in consultation with your doctor endorsement from CDC, I think remains to be seen. Okay. Um, so, Josh, let's take a, a few questions from readers, uh, if that works for you. Um, uh, someone was asking um, just uh, if you had any comments about what's going on with the Alzheimer's drugs uh, from Biogen and Roche. This is from John. Uh, yeah, this, not, the, I don't know. The Roche one's farther off. Um, you know, next week, I believe, is the date um, at which, uh, by which the FDA will decide on full approval of Lakembi, which is the new Biogen ASI Alzheimer's drug. The real question there is about CMS reimbursement, and it does seem from statements from CMS in the past few days that it will not be the barriers to, um, you know, access for this drug for seniors will not be very high. They, you know, that for for reasons that we've talked about on this podcast before, mm-hmm. um, CMS has put restrictions on reimbursement for this type of drug. Uh, but now they say with full approval, which again could come next week, they will cover the drug if doctors put information about the treatment in a registry and they put out information about what that would mean last, last week, I believe, earlier this week. And it seems as though I was late, late last week and it seems as though it will not be onerous um, and it will not cost anything. So it seems like the questions, the answer to the question of when will Will, will, will Medicare cover uh, Lakembi seems to, to be yes. And, and so that's going to begin to roll out, um, you know, assuming the FDA, as expected, approves the fully approves the drug next next week. It'll it'll start to roll out soon. OK. And then uh, Gordon was wondering, what's the best investable trend in healthcare for the next 10 years? And maybe along the same lines, Richard was wondering, where do you see AI being introduced into healthcare initially? 
if I knew the answer to Gordon's question, I would be <laughs> working at a hedge fund. <laughs> uh, I know I, 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 geez. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. Uh, I can answer that. Um, that's a big one. And, and as far as healthcare, you know, I think if you talk to biotech investors, especially early stage, you know, and the big companies, they all talk about using AI in various ways in drug development. Um, but then there's lots of questions and conversations about um, how it gets entered into the, or where it belongs in the, in, in the patient experience and not so up on that, but certainly um, companies are already doing a lot of work on um, AI and, and drug discovery and drug development. Okay. Um, and let's uh, finish up then with a discussion of, um, of Sarepta. Now I'm used to uh, stocks rising after the FDA approves one of their drugs, but that's not what happened with Sarepta. Uh, care to explain? Yeah, so you know this is this has been a long-running saga. Sarepta has a gene therapy for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, uh, which is a, a really horrible, progressive, and fatal condition that manifests in early childhood. And the gene therapy, you know, had, makes um, causes the body of the patient to make a version of the muscle-building protein that the patients can't make. Um, uh, the The company had asked for approval without finishing the trial that would um, prove its clinical benefit. So they can, they have data showing that body, that it makes the body make the protein, but they don't have data showing that it actually has a clinical benefit. That phase three trial is going to produce data later this year. Um, Sarepta asked for accelerated approval in advance of the data and they got it. There's been a lot of reporting um, that this is quite contentious within the FDA. Sarepta and the FDA have a long and contentious history <laughs> as people who have followed this for the past few years will know. Um, the FDA gave a narrower approval than Sarepta had hoped for. They wanted it for all DMD patients able to walk, which could include patients up to 13 years old. The initial approval is only for children aged four to five. But I think what really led the stock to fall, I mean, approval had been expected for the last number of weeks. Um, what led the stock to fall was that the FDA said that they could withdraw the approval if the phase three study doesn't produce positive data. Now, if it does produce positive data, maybe they'll expand it to a broader patient age group. But if not, this could go away. So I don't think that was what investors were looking for and, and the stock fell. It's also worth mentioning that the um, gene therapy costs uh, $3.2 million, which is a lot, but not out of line with other one-time gene therapies that have been approved recently. There's a $2 million one from Novartis, a three and a half million dollar one from uh, CSL Bearing and a three million dollar one from Skysona and the I'm sorry from Bluebird Bio called Skysona and the idea with all of these is just that um, you know a one time shot to, uh, um, you know obviates the need for um, other also expensive treatments that they would have received chronically if they hadn't received the shot. And, and it's also, I mean, the um, a lot of these uh, illnesses don't have a lot of, um, they're not a lot of people that suffer from them, but the ones that do suffer terribly. Um, no, for sure. Yeah. And, 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 and that's and, just and, kind of, the, and, sorry, go on. No, and caring for them is very expensive. So the argument is if, if this shot could, you know, uh, avoid other costs, um, insurers should be uh, willing to pay it. All right. Well, uh, Josh, uh, um, I think that is all the time we have today. Um, I'd like to thank everyone for listening and thank you for being here.
Um, please join us again tomorrow on Opus Energy Insights. Uh, experts from Opus will discuss how hurricanes could affect gasoline prices this summer. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. Stay well and have a nice day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.